The All Souls Forum is a production of the Unitarian Universalist Church at 4501 Walnut Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Each week they present a public forum whose mission is to deal with significant issues, especially those that involve ethical values of the contemporary world and to promote critical thinking. So, without further ado, here is this week's production of the All Souls Forum. Welcome to All Souls Forum. I'm Spencer Graves, a member of the Forum Committee. Today, Drew Bergerson will discuss sociological factors dismantling democracy. I suggested Drew for this topic because he's a history professor at UMKC. He's also the lead author or editor of two books on modern Germany, based in part on interviews he conducted with ordinary Germans in the 1990s. The Happy Burden of History, published in 2011, and Ruptures in the Everyday, Views of Modern Germany from the Ground, published in 2017. The mission of this forum is to provide, is to afford a platform for the discussion of significant issues, especially those which involve ethical values in the contemporary world, and to promote critical thinking. It has been doing this since 1943. Drew will speak for about 40 minutes. That will be followed by a question and answer period. Drew? Okay, thank you, Spencer. Thank you all for coming this morning. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you on this important topic. You'll notice I made a small change to my title, Sociological Factors Dismantling Democracy and Civility, because I believe that those two things are very closely related. Today, here's what I'm going to do for you. First of all, my goal is to introduce you to a number of sociological concepts, theories, that are based on Nazi Germany. Some of them were made by other scholars and some by myself, so that you can analytically understand the, the events that we're, we're talking about. It's going to go fast and furious, and I can answer questions about them afterwards. So I'm going to focus on large-scale social relationships, on the small scale, on interactions between ordinary people in everyday life. And I'm going to end my talk today by talking about how what, what can we do to our empower ourselves to take responsibility. Um, <clears throat> so let's start with macro-social interactions. Let's begin with politics, because we need to lay a, a groundwork here. Um, in the 20th century, over the course of the 20th century and the 21st century, there have been, we talk often about our politics being polar, polarized. That's not the way I understand it. When I look at the 20th century, I see a series of wars, civil wars, hot wars, total wars, and cold wars between these three fundamentally different systems for how to be a modern society. They are antithetical to each other. They detest each other. This is the source of the conflict when it comes to fascism. Fascism rejects these other two systems, and that's true of each of the others. Communism rejects the other two, and so on. The place where we get hung up is that most of our politics takes place within what I'm calling capitalist or social democracies. So whether you're a conservative or you're a progressive, whether you're a liberal or you're a libertarian, we all fall under those categories because we agree on certain basic fundamental principles. Individual rights, a market-based economy, the rule of law, and free and fair elections. 
So when a conservative wins an election or a liberal wins an election, they step down and they allow the other person to have power because we've agreed on that set of rules. These two other systems don't, and they, each one is antithetical to the other two. So we're talking about a very different kind of degree of politics here. We're talking about a rejection of that whole system of free and fair elections, for instance. I'm going to focus today on fascism, and I'm including national socialism in that category. Not all historians do that. The term comes from the Italy case, Partito Nazionale Fascista, but the Germans adopted very similar politics. There were lots of fascist parties in the 1920s. The National Socialist Germans Workers' Party is the one that I'm going to talk about today. These parties are anti-peace. They emerged in the world as a rejection of the efforts to create peace and end war in 1917. And they continued to refuse to accept peace into the 1920s and 1930s. They were fundamentally anti-democratic, as I showed you already on the, on the chart. They, in the case of the, the Nazis, they wanted to dismantle democracy. They hated it. They think it was wrong for the world. They were also anti-capitalist and anti-communist. And that makes no sense for all of you who were raised and lived through the Cold War. How can you be a whole bunch of others? Here on my, you can see in the picture that I found on a map of Russia, and you can see that Russians only were part of their area. They had lots of other ethnic groups that, that they ruled over. This ethnic group is sovereign over the political that realm. They controlled it. And it was the dominant culture. Russian was the dominant culture. But empires presume heterogeneity. It assumes not everyone has to share the same culture or be the same kind of person, as long as you follow the czar. An imperialist believes that their ethnic group has the right to rule and govern and control their ethnic groups. A nation-state is a different kind of phenomenon. Nation-state is when one ethnic group rules over its own ethnic group only. The idea is that that ethnic group is sovereign. So here we have France. French people are sovereign over France. They are the dominant culture. But the assumption is homogeneity, that everyone is going to speak French and everyone's going to eat French food the way French people like it, and they're all going to dance French ways, etc. For a nationalist, the goal of a nationalist is not only to unite all the people that belong to your ethnic group in one country and to promote their national interests, but to convince people that their most important identity is nationalist. That when you ask someone, what are you? They don't say, I'm a peasant. They say, I'm French. The Third Reich, das Dritte Reich, was a mix of these two things. The word Reich means realm. It, that refers both to a nation and an empire. So here you can see the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, which was the thing that um, Charlemagne created in the late Middle Ages and lasted a thousand years. It was a mixture of all sorts of different people. By its end, it was mostly, but not universally, German. That was the first Reich in the mind of the Nazis. The second German empire was the one created by Bismarck in 1871. This third Reich is going to be imperialist. It's going to be colonizing. But the difference from other empires is it's going to be homogenizing. It's going to make everyone the same in all those territories. So it's really about expanding the German nation in an imperialist way, if that makes sense. 
the target group, the main group that was Hitler's obsession were Jews. Anti-Semitism was the ideology, and it was a, in its simplest definition, hostility or prejudice against Jewish people as such, not as individuals, or because they were Jews. The Nazis wanted to create what they called a Volksgemeinschaft, which I would translate as a fascist and racist community of Aryans. They did this by excluding Jews. Here you see a, a rival of Jews in a, in a death camp. And they also did it, though, by including all the Aryans across social boundaries, whether they were workers or they were peasants or they were men or women. They all participated, as you can see in this march down, um, down uh, a street in Hildesheim by Hitler Youth. By the way, the other book that, um, that uh, Spencer forgot to mention is Ordinary Germans in Extraordinary Times. I'm going to be talking about that one. I published that one in 2004, and that has most of the information about these interviews that I conducted. So this Volksgemeinschaft is an imagined community. That's the concept that um, Benedict Anderson, a political science used, scientist, used. Because Germans didn't always meet each other. They didn't know each other face-to-face -face personally. They imagined that they belonged together. And now they were reimagining themselves belonging together, not as citizens of a republic, but as Aryans as part of this community. The Nazis, very hard sometimes for Americans to understand, the Nazis believed they were restoring freedom to the world. Americans always assume we're the ones who fight for freedom. Unfortunately, every one of those systems believes that they're the ones who are bringing freedom. And the Nazis believed it was freedom for Aryans. Freedom from the Jewish-Bolshevik conspiracy. Freedom to, to unite all of Germans in one empire and the freedom to grow as large as we deserve because we Aryans are better than everyone else. So they sought to restore full sovereignty of all German territories. This is what the map looks like by 1942. Um, and basically conquer all those territories and settle it with their ethnic population people. The concept that the Nazis used for this was Lebensraum, living space. It's a geopolitical idea that emerged in World War I. And the notion was, here you can see kind of a rough ethnic map. It really does not do justice to the ethnic diversity of East Central Europe. But you can see that the Germans had the intention of getting back territories where Germans lived and also then colonizing it. So um, Mark Levine, who's written a really fascinating series of historical books on genocide, argues that genocide happens when a project for building a nation or building an empire gets somehow frustrated. Some population refuses to cooperate with this vision, this imagined community that the, that the, that the attacking group has. And then the attacking group doesn't just agree to either move them out of the way or or, or, or change them into to servants, the attacking group then starts slaughtering them because of the resistance or the reluctance or the frustration that's going on in this dynamic. So um, we see that in the change in the term Vernichtungskrieg, which had a, a, more, a more military uh, basis in the 19th century. By the, by, by the time the Nazis are using it, it means a war of extermination a war of eliminating those other populations who are going to stand in the way. So what I just tried to do very quickly is outline the relationships between big groups 
in the Nazi worldview. So you understand not only are they out to destroy just democracy, they're out to destroy entire other social groups because it's standing in the way of their national, ancient, and empire-building projects. Let's now get down to the level of ordinary people because this is the one that my own research has I've always found more fascinating. So the Nazis were a modern project. They envisioned remaking man into something better than he was, and that included women. So they imagined a new kind of self, and they called this self an Aryan. I'm not going to give you the whole history of this concept, but the bottom line is that it's a, both a racist and a fascist concept. It's racist because it's assuming that they are biologically better than all other human beings. And it's fascist because this Aryan was expected to demonstrate his loyalty to Hitler, his enthusiasm for the Third Reich at all times. We're going to talk more about this. These principles were enshrined in the Nuremberg Laws, and added into this was a hyper-masculine and violent ethos that came with the performance of being an Aryan. One of the key concepts at, of the Third Reich was called the Führer Principle. This idea was that the leader's word was above all law. Notice right here that this is anti-democratic, right? We believe in democracies, all the groups at that top of that list, whether you're a conservative all the way down to a, a democratic socialist, you believe that the law is the thing that should be the most important. We swear oaths to constitutions, and we abide by those rules. The Nazis are saying, no, whatever Hitler says is the law. And I call this a fascist social contract. So. Um, what I mean by that is that ordinary Germans were demonstrating not just obedience to whatever Hitler said, but enthusiasm. They had to publicly and regularly show that they were loyal. This demonstration of legitimacy and loyalty took place in everyday life through ritualized performances. Michel Wild has a slightly different expression, but I think it's very accurate. He calls this working towards the Fuhrer, working towards the leader. And what he does, what he shows in a really amazing book is he, um, he shows that the, the true believers, the, the Nazis who were Nazis in their bones, they anticipated what Hitler, what they thought Hitler wanted, like attacking Jews or attacking communists. And they took it upon themselves to act on the assumption that their leader was being stymied by some international, international pressure or a Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy, that they knew what Hitler wanted. Ordinary people took the initiative in violence. Another expression we use in, the, in scholarship is we call this anticipatory violence. Alain Confino starts this story rather early. He's also a historian. He wrote this book called A World Without Jews. And he argues that the crucial first step for the Nazis in 1933 was to imagine a world where Jews would not exist. In other words, the fantasy took place before the action. But that fantasy of a world without Jews then required performance. So he focuses on the two cases I like that he talks about the best or that I find most interesting is the attempt by scholars to make Jesus into an Aryan by removing all of his Jewish roots and even excising the Old Testament. 
right? I, I thought this group would like that one. Um, but the other thing they did was burn books, including burning and desecrating the Torah and the, and the Talmud, the key texts of Jewish, the Jewish tradition. What Confino argues is that these performances, these public performances of what was really symbolic violence at this point in time, right? It's not physical violence, it's symbolic. But it was still highly emotional and taboo-breaking. It was saying, we're prepared to do anything to transform this world into the fiction that we have. I call these, in my own scholarship, anticipatory memories. What I mean is that when you're about to do something bad, and you know it's bad, you have to come up with a convincing story to justify what you're about to do, so that when you're done with it, you can look back and you can say, I was ethically coherent. I, I, I was following my own principles. So to me, this is a form of storytelling that enables violent action. Brendan Lindsay, in his work on genocide by uh, white settlers in California against Native Americans, uses an expression I also like. He calls this a genocidal atmosphere. In other words, the atmosphere in which genocide is going to become more likely. Another concept that I introduced with my uh, fellow authors in The Happy Burden of History is sovereign impunity. I think that when a, an ordinary person is about to engage in this kind of violence, that they have to assume a posture that's different from what a citizen would assume in a democracy. And this posture is, I lay claim to the right to attack and conquer and steal and murder. But I'm going to limit my ethical or my empathy, my ethical obligations or my empathy only to people in my group. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say these other people that are suffering don't matter because I only care about or worry about the people that are within my ethnic group. I call this sovereign impunity because it enables action. It's a story that enables action. Um, I read this book uh, much later, <laughs> and it's really amazing. It's another one I would recommend by Elaine Scarry. She wrote The Body in Pain in the, uh, uh, in the 70s, I believe, or the early 80s. And she, um, and she looked, she was interested in how do you convince another group of people that their political fictions are wrong? So if we go back to that initial chart of those three big groups, how do you say, how do you convince a Democrat, if you're a fascist, that democracy doesn't work and you have to give up on it? How does a Democrat convince a communist that they have to give up on democracy? And she argues that the reason why we engage in war and torture is to not only demonstrate the power of our regime vis-a-vis -vis those other people, but to convince them to give up those political fictions. So we cause pain to bodies, literally, in war. That's what war is, causing pain to bodies. We do that in order, to con we keep doing it until the other side says, yes, I give up, I accept the world the way you say it should be, rather than the way I should say it should be. Here you can see, in terms of torture, uh, Jews cleaning the, uh, scrubbing the pavement in Vienna. Uh, you can see ordinary Germans and Nazi officers um, enforcing this torture. You can see Poles being killed when they, the Nazis invaded in Poland. And you can see Germans changing the street signs in Poland, because that's what this was about. War was about changing what, how people accepted their political community to look like. What was, their, what was the nation and empire going to be? Well, now it's going to be a Nazi-occupied Europe, and you have to accept it. We're going to transform it, or else we're going to 
cause pain to your bodies. Uh, Michael, Michel Foucault, a uh, French philosopher, calls this biopolitics. So let's see if we can apply some of these concepts that I've just been listing for you to a case. Um, this is the work by uh, Jeffrey Kopstein and Jason Frittenberg. It's called Intimate Violence. And it's interested in a really specific kind of situation. But it's one that I think you're going to find very relevant to the question, to the concerns that most of us have, which is when does one group attack another group and try to kill them? And they looked specifically at a series of pogroms that non-Jews did onto, perpetrated onto Jews in the Kaisi, in the borderland. So in this map, you can see that when when the Nazis invaded Poland from one side, the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the other side. And so half of Poland was occupied by, um, by uh, the Soviet Union. And then the Nazis decided Operation Barbarossa to attack the Soviet Union too. But it took them a few minutes to get from the border all the way across Poland. And in that time, some of the local Lithuanians, Ukrainians, other, other Poles, attacked and killed their Jewish neighbors in anticipation of the arrival of the Nazis, before the Nazis even got there. So the question these political scientists asked is, which ones did this happen? What towns were, which factors in which towns caused them to do this? And which towns were more resilient? Which towns were able to resist this pressure to commit violence against their neighbors? So their answer to this question is that the genocide anticipatory violence was more likely when there was a power threat from one community on the other. They're using a, a term from an American sociologist called Herbert Balalik. And here's how it goes. You would think that the pogrom would take place where, when there was a really large non-Jewish population and a really small Jewish population, because then the minority is really vulnerable, right? That makes sense. They said, no, that's not what happened. The power threat was higher when both of the ethnic groups were relatively equal in size and both of them were vocal. In other words, if you had a group, 30% of your population was Polish and 30% was uh, Jewish and 30% was Ukrainian, that's when the pogrom took place, when those ethnic groups felt most threatened by the presence of this minority, when the minority was the most vocal. So it's a little counterintuitive, but it makes sense if you think about it, because they felt the threat, they felt, the Poles felt, oh, these Ukrainians, they're going to try to make this town into part of Ukraine. They felt more threatened because there were more Ukrainians there, and they were not in a clear majority. So my own research, we introduced another concept called duplicity. Now, duplicity doesn't mean like trickiness. I mean, it has trickiness in it, but that's not what we mean. What we mean is, under what conditions would a person convince themselves of someone else's lies? Why do people make themselves into the dupe of other people? We all know that fascists are liars. This is common. We people say this all the time these days. They're lying, they're lying, they're lying. The Nazis were masters of propaganda. The Nazis were bold-faced liars. And most importantly, I didn't even put it up on the list. The, the whole Nazi ideology was predicated on conspiracy theories. 
So a lot of the time people say, ah, we're the truth tellers and they're the liars. That's the problem with the world. We're the truth tellers and they're the liars. Unfortunately, it doesn't really work because we all deceive ourselves and others all the time in everyday life in lots of small little ways. And we need lies and self-deceptions. So I'll give you a really concrete example. When I was a graduate student um, and I was about to give my first talk, I was terrified. I did not think that I was a professor. So I lied to myself. I said, you can't do this. You are a professor. You know your material. You can share this information with other people. They can learn from you. I lied to myself. I believed my own lies. And guess what? I became a professor and I, and I succeeded in my talk. So there are lies that are lies that are, that are part of everyday life. So we have to figure out what it is about fascist lies that makes them so dangerous. How And also, how did, or this is another way of asking the question, how did ordinary Germans seal this fascist social contract? So let's look at this concept of self-deception when it came to Nazis. So the first lie was, the Fuhrer says to the ordinary German people, you are an Aryan Superman. You're an Ubermensch. You're better than every other person in this world. Your race is superior. I, the dupe, believe these lies that the leader is telling me because I want to become the person that he says I am. I want the status. I want the power. I want the money. I want all the things that comes with being an Aryan Superman. Problem is, it's a weak truth. It's only a truth because someone said it to me. So I don't totally believe it because I'm aware that I'm lying to myself about it, just like I was when I went up to that speech the first time. The second stage is the next crucial stage. In this stage, the lie, the dupe forgets that they duped themselves. And they say, I, I didn't have any role in this duplicity. What he's saying is an absolute truth. So by ignoring my own duplicity, my role in duping myself and making myself into a dupe, in believing the lies, I can now believe that this lie is absolutely and unconditionally true. I can take it as a strong truth. The third step is the one that's the most dangerous. Because then the fascist leader ensures that it is sealed in violence. Once people start dying because of this lie, I become complicit in a conspiracy that's causing other people death, and I have to abide by the lie. Because, and this, by the way, is this is how gangs work, this is how mafias work, keeps people in the lie, bound to their leader, because they all could be caught for being um, collaborators, for being perpetrators as well. Where did these oaths take place? In my own research, I show that this oath took place in everyday life, hundreds of times a day, between ordinary Germans. So for instance, here you can see um, in both of these pictures, um, ordinary Germans saying Heil Hitler. In the 1930s, in the 1920s, the standard greeting was good morning, Mr. So-and-so, or good morning, Mrs. So-and-so, or good morning, Dr. So-and-so. 
you would greet each other, you would shake each other's hands, you would bow to each other, you would tip your hat at them, and you always greeted every person you met, regardless of their politics, because you lived in the 1920s in a civil society. You hated their politics. If you were a, a, a middle-class liberal, you hated the communists, and the communists hated you. You still greeted them because it was a civil society. Heil Hitler changes this. Heil Hitler says, I am going to put Hitler right here in our social relationship. Every time I talk to my neighbor, I'm going to make sure that you know that I'm part of the Volksgemeinschaft, I'm part of this new Third Reich, and you either come along with us or you're an outsider. And if you're a Jewish person or if you're a homosexual or if you're a, or if you're a communist or if you're a social democrat or even if you are a Catholic in some cases, you felt alienated by this. You felt pressure to conform, to collaborate. This was not civility. This was transforming a civil society into a racist and fascist society. And it took place all the time in everyday life. It was the most potent symbol of the spread of Nazis other than the swastika flag. So what are you going to do? Do you go along with all these small symbolic actions that are clearly moving you towards this racist and fascist system? And don't get confused, when people said Heil Hitler and there was a Jewish person present, they all understood that they were excluding the Jewish person from their society. The, 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 the anti-Semitism was, was an obvious part of what everyone was doing. So Jürgen is one of my interview partners. Here you can see him. Um, he uh, was more than happy to do the interview. He insisted he was never anti-Semitic. Um, that he joined the Hitler Youth because he had to in order to get a job, to get an apprenticeship. Um, and he said, you know, those Hitler youth, they really weren't that political. We did a lot of hiking. We did a lot of marching. It was fun because Catholics and Protestants were finally united together in one group. And it didn't matter if you were a banker's son or a worker, you all were together. And that and you felt like this belonging together for the first time in German history, which a lot of people shared that opinion. And when it came to those times when they had to sing those songs, I just mouthed the words. I didn't really participate. And then to prove the point, he says to me, when I went to actually become a Hitler Youth, when I was forced to, because I had to get an apprenticeship, I told that to the leader of the Hitler Youth, and he said, you're doing this just because you need the job. You're not really a Nazi. I know. Now you wonder, why was he telling this to a New Yorker um, in 1990? He didn't know I was Jewish. He could have guessed that. But you can see that he was intentionally trying to use this story to demonstrate to me that he had been a nonconformist all along. Well, unfortunately, that's not totally accurate. He, Because he got an apprenticeship, he was able to become an engineer, and he worked in an airplane factory all the way till 1945, building airplanes for the Nazis. He also supported Hitler all the way till 1943 and agreed with his politics and said, yes, the war, we should be engaging in this war that's destroying this continent, the worst war in human history. And he only stopped because the Allies were bombing cities and it was obvious that he lost. So he wasn't a nonconformist. He was a collaborator. And when, if you had asked Hitler, I think Hitler would have said, he's building the airplanes? Good. What matters is what he did, not what he thought. 
And certainly from Martha's perspective, this is what she saw. Martha is in the picture in the middle. She's the girl in the back eating the ice cream. A Jewish girl um, who lived in Hildesheim, the town that I did my research in. And when she sat on her grandmother's uh, um, uh, balcony and watched the Hitler youth go by singing when Jewish blood squirts from my knife, she thought they were going to come upstairs and kill her right then and there. She did not see nonconformity. She saw collaboration. Okay, so this is my last slide of, of sociological concepts. Um, I think what you need to do is you need to understand the way that fascists place people in what are called irrational choices. A rational choice is a choice to maximize your utility. We make rational choices all the time. I went to one shop that was that gave me either better or less expensive eyeglasses, uh, and I, I made that choice to choose which eyeglasses I want so that I to maximize my utility. We make those kind of choices all the time. It's the basis of a modern society. An irrational choice is a choice that I make to maximize my utility that ends me up in a worse situation than I was before. It's irrational because every time I seem to be making the right choice, I end up in the worst situation. The concept comes from Zygmunt Bauman, a Polish sociologist, and he uh, and here's the example I want to give you from my research. Um, the gentleman down on the right, Gerhardt, uh, half Jewish, half Protestant young man, very aware of his Jewishness, very aware of his Germanness, was leading a group of Jewish kids on a hike in, a, in the woods, the Hildesheim Forest, just outside of town. Um, and he was the late, he was the head of the Hillel Group, which is the Jewish um, youth organization. 1935, and they started getting into a debate about what the kids should do in school. Because when a teacher walked into a classroom in Germany in the 1920s, all the kids got up and said, good morning, Herr Dr. Professor Bergerson. Or they, they greeted, formally greeted their instructor. Um, and after 1933, the kids started getting up and saying, good morning, and saying, Heil Hitler. Well, what's, what's, a, what's a person who doesn't believe, who believed in democracy, <laughs> who believed in civility? Or a person who's Jewish, what are they going to do in that situation, that kid? Do they stand up and say, Heil Hitler, and, and pledge their oath to a system that they don't believe in, or a guy who's trying to kill them? Or do they say good morning and stand out, or do they just do nothing and get in trouble from the teacher? Do you see these as irrational choices? These are a set of choices that the fascists are imposing on ordinary people, where every choice leads to an un an irrational outcome. Bauman refers to this as, calls this, soliciting the aid of the victims in their own victimization. And I think it's a powerful message of how fascism really operates. Uh, during the question and answer questions section, I can continue this story. It gets even more interesting, but I don't have time, so I want to make sure that we go on. So um, I'm not sure how we're doing on time, but I wanted to just finish um, uh, I wanted to finish with some recommendations for how we might empower responsibility. Just uh, just five more minutes. That's okay. Okay. Um, first of all, the most important thing you can do in democracy is vote. Uh, Tim Snyder, a historian, says you never know when this election is going to be your last free election. Um, I like the concept that was introduced by uh, Dominic Lacapra and then reused by Bashir Bashir and Amos. Goldberg, in this book called The Holocaust and the Nabka, they refer to empathic and unsettlement. 
decolonizing our sense of self, challenging these fantasies of national homogeneity and imperial domination. But you could also think of what there's that message of empathic um, unsettlement as realizing the dream of the United States, of a true multi-ethnic democracy, of true civil civility in society, and of a politics of equality and equity. In terms, we, sh we need to be focusing on building these resilient communities, which means building social capital with people who are different from you through solidarity, strengthening their groups so that they can strengthen yours. We need to build a broad anti-fascist coalition. Remember that World War II was won, not just by Democrats, but by Everyone from conservatives like Winston Churchill all the way over to communists like Joseph Stalin. All of them were anti-fascists. All of your parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents who fought in World War II were anti-fascists. And the only way to defeat them is united. If you accept my premise that there have always been fascists around and that they were just quiet for a while and then they get stronger, that those three systems have always been part of modern societies then it really doesn't help us to worry too much about converting fascists. We need to be speaking to the collaborators, the people who are helping the fascists rather than the fascists themselves. My argument is we never succeed in changing the mind of true believers. I interviewed people in the 1990s and they, they said they were fascists before they're still fascists today. But we can win over the, collabor the collaborators and convince people not to be bystanders. So work on showing them that civility and democracy matters. We do that by focusing on policy. We, if Democracy has to show that it's better than fascism. And the way we do that is by actually addressing the social issues that people, that, that are, that people need. In other words, we need to create real social justice, and then people will come over to they will support democracy. Remember, there are no bystanders. Refuse to accept your own ordinary, ordinariness. Everything we do is political. Get involved. Remember, with social justice and democracy, what matters is what you do, not what you think, how you feel. But take care when you act. We become what we do. The principle here comes from Hannah Arendt. She said, be careful, I'm quoting loosely, be careful when you commit murder, because you'll be living with a murderer for the rest of your life. Last thought from the happy burden of history, taking responsibility for the things that we have done to other people, whether individually or collectively, whether historically or in the present, should be a happy burden because we learn who we are, who we were, and who we can be together. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was very powerful. First question. How do we get, uh, how do we prevent certain people from hijacking the word freedom who aren't fighting for freedom, like the people on January 6th who thought they were spreading freedom by trying to overthrow our democracy? Okay, so um, all words can be hijacked. All words can be changed. We have no control over words. We don't have control of symbols. Um, the swastika, the flag, all those things can be transformed. And we don't want to control them. My my argument would be that um, we, first of all, we use every possible means at our, at our disposal to communicate what our idea of freedom is and what that means. And 
So we need good journalists. We need good, good filmmakers. We need good, uh, good songwriters. And we need to constantly be making clear that, that that idea is the one that's better. But we need to then prove that democracy and our concept of freedom is better. And that means we need to address the social causes for why people are going to fascism in the first place. But my third point is, as I said also earlier, I don't think we're going to win over the true believers. The ones who believe, for instance, in the case of the United States, that uh, the United States is a white Christian nation and they're white nationalists and they want to get rid of people of color or Jews or other groups, we're not going to win over those true believers. Fascism has been part of modernity from the beginning from for 150 years. They've always been there. They're not going anywhere. They have become powerful and vocal because of taboo breaking. They now can come out into the public sphere. And they are getting support from collaborators. Those are the people that we have to convince that to go back to, to the, we don't want people to be working with them. who are just doing it for instrumental reasons. We need to convince those people that our system is better. Yes. Can you give me a working person's understanding of the term fascism? And also, do you feel that communism incorporates some of those elements of fascism. So if you um if you look at my chart from way back to the beginning, I you know I I could teach whole classes on this, so I have to summarize these things very briefly. Um so this is my def these are my definitions of fascism um as anti-peace, anti-democratic, anti-capitalist, anti-communist, ultranationalist and imperialist. But my my key principle here, the in practice, it's this fascist social contract that connects ordinary people to their leaders through duplicity, through self-deception, and then through public demonstrations of the lies. So again, my model is I want to believe what my leader tells me that I am, that I'm better than everyone else, that I have more, I should have more money and more power. I, I have the right to be violent to other people. And then I lie to myself that I was the one who believed the lie so that I can believe that it's a totally true fact, absolutely true, and no one's going to be able to convince me of otherwise. And then the leader seals that with violence because I help the leader to kill people or cause people harm. And from that moment on, I'm never going to give up. But to your other question, in my model, the way that you were probably taught political science, you were probably taught that there's a left and there's a right, right? And then in the Cold War, Hannah Arendt said, no, actually, communists and fascism are really very similar. They're both totalitarian because they reject capitalism and, and democracy. So in my model, the benefit of the three-way model is that it shows that from the from either angle, from either corner, the, it hates both of the other two. From a communist from a communist perspective, they detest both capitalist democracies and fascism. And by the way, they also include social democrats, and there they hated the social democrats. From a fascist perspective, cause for the that communism and capitalism and democracy are both evil is that there's this secret Jewish conspiracy behind both capitalism and communism. So if you attack the Jews, then you solve both of those problems and you find this third way that's separate from both of those other two. And from the perspective of 
on Arendt's perspective of the capitalist of social democracies, she looks down and she sees communism and fascism and she says they're essentially the same, they're totalitarianism. So I'm not prioritizing and saying who's right. I'm just showing you that in the dynamics of politics over the course of the 20th century, you had different wars, civil wars, cold wars, based on which two of these allied with the other, right? Um, in the 1930s, they were all trying to kill each other. Think of, of in the 1920s, Spanish Civil War. These groups tried to, tried to fight against the other. Didn't work. Finally, World War II. Stalin was able to work together with the United States and Britain and France against fascism in and, and, and Japan and Germany and Italy. Then fascism was defeated. Then you have a Cold War. Were the fascists really gone? No. They were quiet. But for a while, it looked like it was a battle between these two, capitalist social democracies and communism. Then communism fell. And lo and behold, guess what happened? The fascists come back, and they and now, because communism has been so discredited, it's not a, a there aren't a lot of communist regimes. We could have a big debate about whether or not China really is a communist regime. I would call it a national socialist regime at this stage. I would switch it to the other side. I would argue that the main wars are going to be taking place over here, sir. Uh, your your story about the. Um interviewee who joined the, the Youth League uh, yeah. was, was telling because it, it uh, made more specific your comments earlier about why in the Third Reich were, were most of the Aryan population in Germany attracted to this regime. And then you mentioned it gave them a sense of uh, belonging across classes, right. uh, self-esteem, pride in themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, which, which is a very important dynamic and, and gave popular support to the, to the Reich at least among Aryans. Uh, and then you mentioned uh, later on that the way to combat uh, fascism was through public policy. So right. which which policies would address that very human need for addressing self-esteem, for cutting across classes in a democratic system? Could you give a few more specific examples of how, uh, uh, how a democratic uh, challenge to fascism could meet that very need? Because I look in our country, the fascist elements certainly are striving for that sense of belonging and self-esteem and self-respect. And our, our fascists in America are satisfying that. How do we do it better? Remember that the Nazis, that's a terrific question. Remember that the Nazis came to power in the Great Depression. What did people want in the Great Depression? They wanted a job. They wanted a house. They wanted health care. They wanted social insurance. How did we avoid becoming a fascist country? Because there were lots of groups in the United States who were promoting similar fascist ideas, also in Britain. Franklin Delano Roosevelt created the New Deal. And some of those policies were successful and some of them were not. But it, it convinced enough people that democracy works. In the 1950s, the way that we won over the collaborators, not the perpetrators, not the true believers, the true believers who were Nazis stayed Nazis. But in Germany, after the war, we won over those other people who had been cooperating with the Nazis through the Marshall Plan. They had homes, and they had jobs, and they had families to return to, and they had a lot of dealing with the Nazi past that they had to go through. But they had benefits. Society worked. Capitalism thrived. 
both Republicans and Democrats in this country understood that the way to sell democracy is success, is getting people the things that they need. If you ask me what we need today in our society to address the needs, we have the worst inequality in human history. We have people whose incomes have not increased in over 30 years. The vast majority of people are impoverished compared to where they were. This is the first generation where they are doing worse off than their parents systematically across the boards. We need to introduce universal health care. We need to introduce, uh, we need to introduce, make sure that people have jobs and that they are good paying jobs and that they have vacation time. All the social, we need to address racial injustice. We need to fix the problems with our democracy. So another way of thinking about this model, which comes from um, um, Konrad Jarausch, a historian um, from uh, the University of North Carolina, he argues that what happens over the course of the 20th century is each one of these systems goes a little bit too far. And some of them are able to adjust and fix their errors. Fascism wasn't able to do that. It gets defeated. Communism was not able to reform itself. Think about what happened right before the wall fell. Gorbachev tried to fix the problems in communism, and it led to its collapse. Capitalist and social democracies had a major crisis in the 1960s, and it retooled. We reformed our societies in a fundamental way in the 1960s. That shows that this system, the one that we are currently living under, is more dynamic and more able to fix its problems. But for the last years, last 30 years, in my opinion, Neoliberalism within capitalist and social democracies has gone so far as to create so much inequality and so much unhappiness that people are turning to the only alternative system that's being offered. Communism was discredited, so now they're turning to fascism. We need to give them a better alternative. We need to make sure that market-based, individual rights societies with the rule of law and free and fair elections works for all people. Sir. So I've heard about a fourth way by a man named Alexander Dugan. Yes. Who's who's a Russian philosopher, yeah. uh, advisor to Vladimir Putin. And what he says is that Soviet Union was anti-fascist and then communism didn't work for them. Democracy didn't work for them because they really got screwed over by the West in the 90s. And now they have a new philosophy. And so what I've been following is the democracy promotion movement around the world. So apparently National Endowment for Democracy started in the 80s and spawned an industry now. And they go around, put on conferences. So I was watching one last week in Taiwan, and they were bashing every country that didn't follow America's lead. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering where the the world is going because it seems like a lot of our tax dollars and foundational support is going into promoting democracy. But the democracy we're promoting tends not to actually be democratic, but just anti-people that are not in line with our values. So I hear two questions there. The first question is whether Putinism 
is a fourth alternative. And as far as I'm concerned, Putinism fits exactly within fascism. It's not, it's no different. He's anti-democratic. He does not have free and fair elections. He doesn't allow for a, an independent journalist uh, to challenge his authority. He puts people in jail. He conscripts people against their will. He he runs a, a, it's an oligarchy. There are some people he is responsible to, his elite, but it's not the democratic system and he's fundamentally anti-democratic. Remember that people need money under fascism too, right? The Tysons made tons of money by producing war goods, just like the oligarchs in Russia make tons of money working with Putin. So there still is money to be made and profits to be made under fascism, but it's a fundamentally anti-democratic movement, and it's based on ultranationalism and imperialism, as we see in Ukraine today, unfortunately. Um, second question. The democracy promotion. So what happens at different times, and this could be a whole study, it's a fascinating study for the 20th century, you could see that, remember that that the fascists and the communists tend to act each in much more tight ways, right? Because Stalin controlled the Soviet Union. And yes, he disagreed with Mao, and he, he sometimes disagreed with other communists in other countries. And they did or they did not always cooperate together. But the Soviet Union spoke with one voice. We don't speak with one voice. <laughs> We've got conservatives and social democrats and democratic socialists and liberals and, and all sorts of... In, in Germany, there were Catholic parties... Lots and lots of different parties. And what happens, because we do allow people to have free and fair elections and to express their own opinions, is that we have lots of voices making different arguments for supporting either communism or fascism at different points in time. So I would say that that's the, that this, this group, I don't know the group, but I would say that they're trying to say, they're trying to position themselves and say there are some things that are good about our society, and then there are other things that we don't like about our society. So we like the democracy, but we like we don't like the way, for instance, our military acts in the rest of the world, or the way our neoliberal policies cause so much debt that it causes other countries' economies to collapse. So they might be trying to take a position that's somewhere a little bit more dynamic in the system. So... And that's where all the normal politics takes place. That's where we can debate. That's where we can disagree with each other. Where we can't disagree with each other, we cannot afford to disagree with each other, is on facing the fact that fascism is now, at this moment, the existential threat to democracy. And that means that all of us, from the conservatives all the way out to the democratic socialists, have to work together to actually solve the social problems in our society. So. People are not attracted to fascism, and they think democracy works. And I would assume that that group is part of that effort to try to to try to say we want democracy, but we want a democracy that actually works for all people. Bruce, I'm we're uh, we're we're almost out of time. Okay, please uh, keep your questions first. Yes, hi. The elephant in the room today is Donald J. Trump. <laughs> After listening to your talk, I would say that Trump and his core base are a system or a society, a micro, uh, you know, a little micro society. Um, would you agree that Trump and his base, uh, the characteristics of it, conform to those of a fascist society or system? A movement, I would use. It's a movement, okay. Absolutely, and I said it before 
um, earlier, even before he got elected. And uh, I have to admit that some of my colleagues, uh, my German history colleagues, said you can't say that. They're just they just they're just oligarchs, or they're just people who don't you know want to restrict democracy. And to me, it was clear from the beginning when they were attacking Hillary Clinton what kind of people that they were. I've been saying that they existed, the alt-right existed for decades, and, and they've been growing. So I think most people now would say it. So making comparisons is a difficult business, and we have to do it responsibly. We shouldn't do it just like off flippantly. Um, so I've actually taught my students how to make comparisons between contemporary politics, and that would be another talk. <laughs> but um, but there are ways to do it with seriousness that enable us to see both the, the similarities and the differences. But if you ask for my short answer, yes. Yes, and I do think your answer to how, how could we resolve a, a fascist movement in the Trump case, I do think Fox is driving it. You know, I don't really think his base are the homeless or necessarily the underemployed there. So what do you have to say about that? How how could we counter the Trump I do movement? not believe that I, I, I do not like Fox News as a source of propaganda, but I'm interested in why the dupes lie to themselves and believe it much more than the fact that the liars are lying. So yes, I think uh, we are basically out of time. I want to thank our speaker, Drew Bergerson. Drew was a history professor at UMKC and the lead author or editor of two books and and uh, and a third of, <laughs> of, of a third that I that I uh, to my embarrassment overlooked. And I want to thank our audience for their history and their questions. Next week, Carl Archipol will tell us why should the governor be running our police department here in Kansas City. I'm Spencer Graves. This concludes our program. Thank you for tuning in to the All Souls Forum. Keep your radio dial to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, for your Jazz Afternoon with KC, coming up immediately. Followed by The Boogie Bridge with Jason Vivoni. And then the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. In the meantime, have a great day.